100 Moments That Rocked Computer Science with Professor Sue Black, OBE. Coming up, we'll hear all about an incredible moment from the history of computer science. First moment that began to realize the potential of, of the web as a two-way medium. The challenges that led to its discovery. It was too slow, it was too hard, it was too intimidating. And the impact it had on our world and maybe our future. I appreciate that we're like fighting the stereotype and I think we're going to start seeing a little bit more of this in the future. All this and more as we explore another moment that rocked computer science. science. Moment number 12, Jimmy Wales on the first wiki. Hi, I'm Sue Black. I'm a professor of computer science and technology evangelist at Durham University. I'm Cal Healy, and I'm in my first year of computer science at Durham University. And I'm Quentin O'Brien and I'm a second year. One of the things I love so much about computer science and the world of tech, even though people think it's all Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk and Silicon Valley tech bros, actually, so much of the tech community is made up of people like our guests today, people who just want to make the world a better place. I'm a huge fan of today's guest. I think encyclopedias are so underrated, so I can't wait to hear what our guest has to tell us about today's moment and to put in my two cents on where that might take us in the future, whether that be 50 or 100 years time. And my job is to try and imagine where we would be without today's moment. And I think that's really interesting to think about, because if we think about like, you know, how accessible information is on the internet nowadays, thanks to these wikis, it's absolutely mad. And I definitely think we take them for granted. And it'd be really interesting to think about what life would be like without them. And I get the pleasure of chatting to our brilliant guest, which this episode is the incredible Jimmy Wales or Mr. Wikipedia to you. He's going to talk to us about the creation of the wiki and how it made his dream possible. And when you think about it, his dream has made our daily lives so much easier and has saved so many students from having nothing to submit for their assignments. Right, we better not include that. (laughs) (laughs) Cal, we'll be back at the end of the show with our thoughts. But if you're listening at home and you have any questions about today's episode or computer science at Durham, email us at 100moments at durham.ac.uk. Or we're on Twitter, so don't be shy. Send us a tweet at 100momentscs. I'm so excited to spend this episode with none other than the legendary Mr. Jimmy Wales, founder of the Wikipedia Project. Jimmy got his degree at Auburn University and the University of Alabama and spent some time as a futures and options trader before turning to entrepreneurship. Jimmy and his partner, Larry Sanger, started Wikipedia in 1999 and soon found the project was an incredible success. He stayed true to his founding principles and resisted the urge to open Wikipedia up to advertisers betting instead on the principle that if it was good enough, people would want to pay. And I have to say, I'm one of those people. I gave £10 last year, uh, which actually makes me sound a bit stingy. (laughs) But um, maybe I should set up a subscription now that I'm saying that. (laughs) Hi, Jimmy, and welcome to the show. It's absolutely lovely to have you here. So can you tell me what's the moment that rocks computer science for you and why? For me, the moment that brought computer science was the creation of the first wiki back in around 1995 by Ward Cunningham. And it, for me, that, that moment, and it took 
several years to realize the potential of that moment was really the first first moment that began to realize the potential of, of the web as a two-way medium. Yeah. The basic meaning of a wiki is a website that anybody can edit. And the word wiki comes from the Hawaiian word wiki wiki, which means quick. And the idea is quick collaboration. So Ward Cunningham had this idea that you could just have a, a web page basically with an edit button. And when you clicked to edit, you could type anything you wanted and hit save. There were some other ideas like, oh, and you could have a really simple way of smashing two words together and what we call camel case. So uppercase the, the first letter of each word and smash it together. And that would automatically create a link to a new page with that title, which of course will be familiar to people with how links are in Wikipedia. You can, you know, link from one page to the other page. And, you know, from that very early beginnings, it took some time to sort of get where we are today. You know, it's quite an innovation, really. Amazing. Thank you. So how did you first come across wikis? So I had this idea for a free encyclopedia written by volunteers a couple of years before I set up Wikipedia. And I started a project called Newpedia, which was the same vision, free encyclopedia for everyone, yeah, freely licensed. But I didn't know about wikis at the time. Truthfully, I didn't know much about how to get an internet community going. And so we put together a seven-stage review process to get anything published. Uh, one of the things that we thought at that time was, unless we're even more academic than a traditional encyclopedia, nobody will take us seriously, that we had to be really, really serious uh, because being from volunteers on the internet, it'd be very easy to make fun of us for just being randoms. Obviously, we know that is something that did happen when we got the key model going. You know, it, it wasn't working. So that top-down model, seven-stage review process, even though we had a, quite a large number of people who had signed up for the website or on the mailing list, almost no work was really getting done. It was... Right too slow. It was too hard. It was too intimidating. And when I knew that it wasn't going to work was when I tried to write an entry. Uh, I was going to write an entry about Robert Merton, who had recently won the Nobel Prize in Economics for his work in option pricing theory, which I knew quite a bit about. I had a published paper. Uh, I was a finance academic before, um, grad student. And I sat down to write it and I felt very intimidated yeah. because even though I knew his work really well, I had been out of academia for a couple of years and I knew that they were going to take my draft and send it to the most prestigious finance professors they could find to review it. Yeah. And it was not going to be fun, right? It was, yeah. it was absolutely <laughs> a bit scary. Yeah. yeah. And that was when I realized like, this is too hard. Like people aren't really going to do this. And so one of my uh, employees, uh, Jeremy Rosenfeld came to me and said, oh, have you seen this wiki thing? Um, and I was like, no, what, you, what is it? And it's like, oh, well, you know, you can just click at it. And we had been talking, like, we have to make this system easier. It's too hard. It's not very much fun. And so suddenly I was like, yeah, that's exactly what we need to do. We need to try that. And so set up the wiki and launched it on January 15, 2001. Um, and I typed the words, hello world, um, yeah. which uh, for programmers, that's a traditional thing you do when you learn a new programming language, one of the first things you do is you just write a little program to print out Hello World. It just shows yourself, okay, I've got the environment set up and I know how to display some text. And it was a very basic starter thing. So I just naturally did that. But if you think about it in the context of Wikipedia, I think it's quite poetic now. I wasn't 
being particularly poetic. <laughs> it's just what you do when you're a programmer. So that was how we got started. And we actually got more work done in about two weeks than we had in almost two years. Wow. So it, it really began very quickly uh, to, you know, to, to turn into something. Yeah, that's a massive difference, isn't it? Crazy. Definitely. Very cool. So do you know anything about Ward Cunningham and how he came up with the idea? Yeah, I don't know Ward well, but obviously we've met many times over the years. Um, he's a really sweet guy, a very well-known programmer, most well-known now for, for writing wiki software, but you know, was a known person in the, in the whole open source world. Was open source part of your inspiration? Yeah, so so really the idea of Wikipedia really came from watching the growth of the free software movement, open source right. software, because you were seeing programmers coming together and collaborating in new ways. Uh, and in fact, you know, if you think about how to get a large group of people to collaborate effectively, um, it turns out that free licenses, so like the GNU GPL or in the case of text and things, Creative Commons, is a really interesting and very powerful technique for solving all kinds of complicated incentive problems. Yeah. So if you just if I just open a website and said, "Oh, everybody, please come and create content," well, it's a bit of a challenge for people. They have to have some sort of an incentive to do it. Oftentimes, in many platforms, that's like YouTube or something like that. Uh, people they want to make some money, they want to be famous, but it's their own creation. But to work together collaboratively where no one is going to sort of stand out and get credit, you know, you think, well, what if I pour all my life into this and Jimmy ends up making a billion dollars out of it and I didn't get anything? That doesn't seem fair. So the open license means anybody can copy, you know, the community can leave. They can take all their work and, and fork, as we call it, and, and go off and do something. So it's a very powerful technique. And in the world of software, you know, it's like, a huge amount of the software that really runs the internet is open source software yeah. written by volunteers or often these days written by volunteers and people working for companies where companies find it's in their best interest to join in on an open source project rather than create something from scratch. And so that spirit of open sharing from the open source software world was very much a part of the ethos of, of Wikipedia from the beginning. Yeah, I mean, I, it really has kind of changed the landscape, I think. Um, <laughs> you know, like I'm just thinking back to, to when I did my degree and started my PhD and, you know, there's been an open source revolution since mm. then, really. And it's it's kind of, in a way, I think mirrored in some of the social revolutions that have come along with it. So I find it all extremely interesting in terms of how we can now collaborate so much, you know, which we just could not do in, in any way back then. Yeah, definitely. And, and I, I think part of what's really interesting is is how much of the building blocks are effectively free, uh, even today. Yeah. Like, just to give one example, say the database software. So Wikipedia, from the very beginning, we ran on MySQL, which is a freely licensed open source database product, which competes, you know, quite effectively, really, with Oracle and other proprietary solutions. And it, you can imagine at the time when I was putting together Wikipedia, it was a passion project. It was something I thought should exist. And if I had had to pay $20,000 a year for a license to Oracle, it would have completely blocked the ability to do the project. Right? Yeah. It was only because the software, the pieces that I need, including the UseModWiki, which is our very first wiki software before we had our own. I just downloaded this 
very basic Perl script. It was free. like And, and that free open sharing culture yeah. where all the building blocks that you need to do something really interesting is just there for you um, is really huge in terms of empowering a lot of different innovation. So thinking back then to when you you did start Wikipedia, what was it in your background that kind of led you to to choose Wikipedia over anything else? So early on, uh, we had the World Book Encyclopedia, which I love. Yeah. One of the fun little anecdotes about that is the World Book Encyclopedia. My mom bought it from a door-to-door salesperson. Yeah. That was a thing back then. And then every year we would get the annual update. So, for example, from the time she bought it, then after that, People landed on the moon, so obviously the article about the moon needed updating. And so they would send out the annual update. And in the annual update, if they had rewritten an entry completely, so there's a new entry of the moon, they would give you these stickers and you could go to the original M volume and pull it out and go to moon and put the sticker in saying, uh, oh, look in the 1974 annual for the update. Wow. Uh, So I loved doing that. Sort of it's changed about knowledge in the meantime. Which, of course, obviously with Wikipedia, it's quite fun because you can go back and look at the history of an entry and think, oh, what do we know more about this that we didn't know several years ago? Yeah, that's actually a really good point, isn't it? The history function in in lots of things which we just have have never had before. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's going to be a very rich source of information for historians in the future, particularly to have an understanding of, you know, what did people understand about x whatever x might be yeah and how did that shift over time so you can you can think about things i've got a very old example i could probably should think of a new one but uh (laughs) we think about the the war in iraq yeah so the 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 second gulf war so wikipedia was founded january 2001 so then september 11th was the attack right uh, yeah on, on the world trade center and so forth and then there was an understanding for a while that i think was generally believed by most people, even people who were against going to war, there was an understanding that Iraq probably had chemical weapons, which proved over time to not be true, but it took some time for that to be established. And so you could go back as a historian and say, oh, here's how how that information, how the general understanding of that information shifted over those couple of years' time. That's just one silly example, but there's going to be tons of things like mRNA vaccines or COVID, where our understanding has has substantially shifted in the last five years as we had this pandemic and things accelerated. So. That is going to be very interesting to see the progression or lack of progression. Yeah. <laughs> um, so in terms of then your kind of your whole belief uh, around the, the wiki model, what, what does that say about your belief in human nature in general? Well, I, I think one of the things that's really interesting and I think important to remember in, in this era of oftentimes the toxicity of social media is, you know, we see at Wikipedia, obviously it's a volunteer effort and hundreds of thousands, millions of people made at least some tiny edit to Wikipedia, but it's a community of really great people who by and large are just trying to do something good and something useful. Yeah. And in fact, we see, so even today at Wikipedia, you can still go to more than 99% of the pages, I think, and click edit and change something without even logging in. And it goes live immediately. It's kind of mind-boggling. And when you look at the edits from people who haven't logged in, we call them anonymous IP addresses, 
the quality of those edits is not as good as that of a very long-standing, experienced, high-quality Wikipedian, but they are still, on average, improvements to the encyclopedia. Yeah. And you realize that people with no, there's no possibility of accountability, you know, there's complete anonymity, and they're still just doing something useful, like fixing a spelling error or something like that. So it gives you this idea of like, actually, most people are pretty nice. Um, What I always say is, if you think about all the people that you meet, you know, in a given year in your personal life, you know, I would say, you know, out of a thousand people, you know, there's probably 10 of them who are really annoying. (laughs) Uh, but you still wouldn't quite call them malicious. And maybe one in a thousand are actually malicious, right? Uh, It's very rare, actually, to have people who are horrible, despite the fact you go on Twitter and you think, oh, basically 95% of everybody is a jerk, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's just not true. And it, it actually, for me, I think what's interesting about that, particularly for people who are studying computer science or, or thinking about technology as a field, is to say, look, there's... There's a huge amount of improvement that I think is available for us over the next 20 years to think about how do we create software to enable the creation of spaces that are healthy online. We clearly know how to create spaces that are addictive and spaces that are sort of rage-fueled and, and so on. But what, what are some of the things, what are the design principles that we could think about to make sure that we have healthier places online where they're more inclusive or they're protective of people's privacy or their ability to talk about sensitive issues without being trolled and things like that. And, um, you know, I, I don't have all those answers, but I think Wikipedia points the way to some of those answers. Um, we're far from perfect, but, you know, in general, if you go on Wikipedia and you start editing, you're not going to get attacked by an army of trolls. Do you know how many people have actually edited Wikipedia? I mean, in, over the, the full history of Wikipedia, I don't know exactly, but I would say it's well over a million. Wow. I would say there's, you know, 50 to 100,000 every month sort of regulars. And then there's really the core community, three to 5,000 people who are okay. super active and are really sort of running things and, and, and keeping an eye on things. Do you know kind of what the spread is across the world in different countries? Yeah, you know, it's it's we're big all around the world. One of the numbers you could look at is per capita readership. Yeah. And in most sort of in the developed world, about one third of everybody sees Wikipedia once a month. Wow. So one third of the internet, which for me, I I'm always amused. To, to think about well, what are the other two thirds doing online? How, do you, <laughs> how are you on the internet for an entire month that you didn't visit Wikipedia once? Like, I don't really understand. Um, but then we can look at certain places. So like um, in Germany, it's higher. It's like 38% last time I looked at the numbers. Uh, and then it's lower in places. So we, you know, we have had to deal with uh, censorship in some parts of the world. Right. The other factors that we look at when we see where is Wikipedia big or not, you know, it's really things that you would expect, um, ex- accessibility of the internet. So if people have good broadband internet and have you know enough wealth to own devices to access the internet, literacy levels makes a difference because you know people who aren't literate um, aren't really able to, to participate or use the encyclopedia. And so it, it sort of tracks all those factors for the most part. There's a few funny anomalies, but um, that, that's the main. 
one of the things that is always super important is thinking about the health of the community. And so by community health, we mean, are there enough people editing? If editing declines, that's viewed as a problem. But it's not a problem that we want to solve by just simply making the edit button bigger or sort of inducing people to edit who probably shouldn't be. It's like we really want good quality editors, thoughtful people who are having fun and staying neutral and, and sort of adhering to the Wikipedia spirit. And that broader understanding of community health is really important to us. So, you know, do people feel safe editing Wikipedia? Uh, do we have diversity in the community? And how can we improve the diversity of the community? That's not an easy task. I mean, it just must be complicated and take a lot of effort. I mean, it's, it is complicated. And, and, and it's interesting because, you know, despite the fact that uh, we've had this as a focus for a very long time, and uh, despite the fact that there's huge community buy-in, the community really wants there to be greater diversity in the community, we also have struggled with it. So of the active community of Wikipedia editors, it's, it depends on how you measure it, but it's more than 80% men. And so we don't have enough women editing Wikipedia. And there's a lot of reasons for that that are outside of our community. So one of them, and I'm always very careful how I say this, so we, it, it used to be much more technically challenging to edit Wikipedia. What that means is my father, for example, wouldn't edit Wikipedia because if he clicks edit and he sees wiki markup language, he's a nice person. He's like, I'm afraid I'm going to break something and he just hit the back button and not do it. And so when you have a system set up that only tech geeks can participate in, then clearly for reasons outside the control of Wikipedia, tech geeks is a very male dominated world. So we've made the editing process much easier and more familiar to people. But then there's, there's other things outside the community. I mean, people's attitudes, people's feeling welcome and so forth in intellectual pursuits can vary in different communities. Um, and then obviously the, then what we do focus on, what we have to focus on is, okay, internally. So what in our community, what are we getting wrong that might be off-putting to some editors? And, you know, that raises all kinds of complicated questions. Uh, but there are questions that we do have to grapple with to say, okay, right, maybe women aren't editing because we let this jerk of a guy go around insulting people all the time like that, that actually matters. So we have to have, um, you know, we have to have community standards that say, no, actually this isn't Twitter. Your solution to a problem is not yelling at people. And we know there are loads of systemic barriers to discourage women from all sorts of things, including computer science a lot of the time, but hopefully um, lots of us working together are managing to do something about that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So thinking about our computer science students um, or people that love computer science or are interested in computer science, what do you think are the big challenges in the future that computer science students can help us to solve? So one of the things that I think I already talked about is questions of, of social computing, the, the interaction between the, the software that we use and the communities that we get out of it. That is a huge area where Clearly, we need some improvement uh, and how to make that happen is a, a whole field of, of study that a lot of people might not think of as like hard computer science, but that's because hard computer science is easy by comparison. Right? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> Humans absolutely. are very complicated and hard. And then broadly lumped under AI, machine learning, that sort of thing, 
obviously that's an area where there's still a lot of hard computer science sort of technical work that's exciting and interesting going on. But also that that is a technology that is now at a level where we're beginning to start to have to think about ethical problems and social yeah. problems around that that are, you know, some some of them are fairly obvious, but that doesn't mean they have an obvious solution. Uh, so I'm I'm I think there's a lot of really interesting things that are going to happen. Yeah. Bias uh, in AI is is hugely important because, you know, if you, I mean, just the simplest way I know of to state the problem is if you're trying to get an AI to make certain decisions by training it on a data set of past human decisions, you're simply training it to be as wrong as we've been all along. Yeah. There's some great examples of this that, that if, if students are interested in reading about it, it's really fascinating to read about where, you know, for example, uh, an algorithm designed to look through resumes, well, guess what? It, it, it will exclude women's colleges for tech jobs because it doesn't see those very often. And it's like, we know as humans, that's completely wrong. And in fact, that's where you probably could get some great talent. And then this goes into all kinds of sort of deeper social questions like, what are the rules that we should have around governments using facial recognition technology? Here in London, where there's, you know, cameras everywhere, <laughs> you know, you don't think like, Cameras everywhere, okay, we've gotten comfortable with that, whether we should have or not is a different question. But when you suddenly realize, do we have the capability for the government to track literally everyone and know who's seeing who and visiting who? And you think, okay, well, in a democratic society where we might be grumpy about the government in various ways, I certainly am, but I don't think that the you know any any government in the near future in the UK is about to start using this technology to disrupt opposition political parties but guess what they will in other countries and they will here eventually if if the technology becomes too easy to to abuse in that way and so yeah that's the kind of stuff that even though we think about it as political i think there's huge room on the technical side of things for people to think about these issues and think about how do we improve systems to ameliorate some of these bad effects. Yeah, I'm completely with you on all of that. And I mean, that's why I'd set up a bias in AI group at, at Durham to, to try and do something about it, bringing together academia industry and uh, government. And we have regular speakers on all sorts of areas within bias in AI. So yeah, I think it's a, a critical area as well for the future and you know, we can't get it right because it's impossible to get everything right. But uh, if we can kind of give it our best shot, I think we really need to uh, put more resources and energy behind it and bring together people from all sorts of backgrounds to help us sort out, well, what's the best way that we could do that? Exactly, yeah. You've changed the world once, Jimmy. Do you think you're going to be able to do it again? Oh, I don't know. I, I've got a pilot project called WTE Social, so Wiki Tribune Social, where... And it really is a pilot project. So it's a small community and we've got some software and we're working. And the idea is to say, let's rethink social networking, social media. So I've launched with uh, no advertising and no paywall. So I've yeah. a series of bad business decisions, but that's how I've <laughs> built my career so far. Um, and the idea there is to say, look, most of the problems that I think we are having with social media is a business model that really pushes them in the direction of outrage, addiction, you know, a lot of bad behaviors, simply because that's the way you show the most ads. And that's sort of the, the value proposition there. 
And so I say, let's just, okay, let's start again and let's, let's eliminate that. Say it's not an advertising business model. People will only pay if they think it's worth paying for, which is basically the Wikipedia model. And then what would you build? What are your, your incentives are different then? And so you might build something that's different. You know, I think one of the first things that comes to my mind is I don't care that you come on the site and spend 12 hours a day on the site. I care that when you do come, you, you leave thinking that was worth my time. And if they ask me to chip in, I'm going to chip in because it's actually great every time I go there. Now, we haven't achieved that yet. Like it's a pilot project and we're exploring ideas and maybe I won't figure anything out, but I'm having fun exploring ideas so that's good that sounds good <laughs> well that's important too it's always important to have fun I think as much as possible in whatever you're doing whether it's at home or at work um well that's really wonderful Jimmy thank you so much for for being a guest um on the podcast today it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you yeah well it's been, been wonderful so thank you Jimmy is amazing. I love chatting to him. I met him at a dinner party last year and we really bonded talking about education and the future and how we really need people to to understand reality so that they can make the right decisions. We had uh, such a great time that evening and as well as bonding over education and technology, we bonded over espresso martinis, which were absolutely delicious. <laughs> well, I, I do love an espresso martini and that interview was a close second to <laughs> espresso martini. <laughs> so, Quentin, what do you think? If we'd never had a wiki, where would we be now? Well, I think that's really interesting to think about because I think we'd probably be in a society where information was sort of gatekept in a way, if that makes sense. Because, you know, people that had access to encyclopedias are like not just going to the library and getting one and, you know, it's a bit of a faff and could actually like buy their own and have this information would be in such a better position for work and study than someone who couldn't afford that. So it's made it a lot more accessible and like, you know, explaining at a level that is accessible to people. And I think that's really important and something that Wikipedia does really well. You're so right, Quentin, um, talking about accessibility. So thinking back to, to when I was a kid, you know, we didn't have the internet then and so if I wanted to have a look at an encyclopedia, I had to go to the local library and wasn't allowed to take it home. Uh, I had to read it in the library and take notes. So, you know, in terms of having access to all of that information, you just think all of, all of everything that's on Wikipedia now, having access to that is incredible. And, you know, back in the day, you'd have to be rich, basically, or, you know, pretty well off to be able to afford encyclopedias to have at home. Whereas today, anyone with an internet connection has got access to all of that information. It's just incredible. And so looking into the future then, Cal, where do you think this pivotal moment will take us next? So I really wanted to explore what Jimmy said about the statistic that 80% of the contributors to Wikipedia articles are male, because I'm all about fighting the statistics of getting more women into STEM. And I, I know there are some universities, I think it's one in Ottawa that made like... Uh, uh, art and feminism Wikipedia editathon, where they encourage more females to edit articles because if we have more females editing articles, you know, women write about women, we'll have more females having their own articles actually being featured. And I think Wikipedia actually has its own page dedicated to this. Like there's an article called Gender Bias on Wikipedia. So I really appreciate that they're like getting awareness out there about you know, the statistic of um, having 
a large majority men I appreciate that we're like fighting the stereotype and I think we're going to start seeing a little bit more of this in the future I think we're going to see a little bit more of a level playing field which is where we should be at the moment but we're not yeah that's absolutely true and so amazingly the the networking group that I set up uh, 24 years ago, BCS Women, the British Computer Society Women's Network, um, had a Wikipedia hackathon some years ago, and we were invited to send in uh, suggestions of women uh, that should have a Wikipedia page. And uh, I'd always thought that uh, the women codebreakers at Bletchley Park should have their own pages. And in particular, Mavis Beatty did some incredible codebreaking at the age of 18, I think, and uh, she didn't have a Wikipedia page at the time. So I suggested Mavis and um, that's one of the pages that was created. So I think absolutely, Cal, it's just so important. Well, on the note of collaboration, in second year, there's a software engineering module. It's basically just this massive group project and you get given a project and you work on it throughout the year. And, you know, it's quite fun. It's only quite fun. Software engineering is amazing. It's very interesting (laughs) to be able to get a bit of close to real world experience during your degree. Yeah, completely. Have you got any moments of your own that you want us to look at? If there's a moment that rocked your world, tweet us at 100momentscs and we might discuss it on the next series. Thanks so much for listening. And thank you to our amazing guest, Jimmy Wales. Tune in next series for another moment that rocked computer computer science. One Hundred Moments That Rocked Computer Science was a Why Did the Chicken production for Durham University. It was presented by Professor Sue Black, OBE, and featured the voice of Anne-Marie Imakadon. Our student brains were Quentin O'Brien and Cal Sahili. The producer was Resi Bernard, and the executive producer, Dan Page. If you enjoyed the show, please do three nice things for us. Subscribe, leave a rating or review, and tell a friend. 